Hey, it's Guy here, and I want to let you know that our partners at TED just launched a new podcast. It's called The TED Interview, and in each episode, TED's curator Chris Anderson sits down with a different TED speaker to dive deeper into their ideas. The first episode features author Elizabeth Gilbert, who expands on her ideas on how to discover your most creative self. You can find The TED Interview wherever you get your podcasts. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So, have you ever seen these surprise egg videos on Look, YouTube? We've got all kinds of surprise eggs for Doc McStuffins to open. They're these videos for kids that show someone opening a plastic or chocolate egg, usually with some kind of cartoon character or superhero theme. What, what Kinder egg is that one? Um, it's a frozen one. And then finding a small toy inside. Let's see what we have here. We all pinned egg in a car. These videos don't just have a few thousand views. Some of them have hundreds of millions of views. And there are tons of them. What's inside? Yeah, I mean, there's there's something that's evolved there that's just that kids love. This is James Bridal. He's a writer and artist. And it's just this these videos that can go on for hours at a time of just a pair of hands on the screen. And let's see what this is. Softly and gently opening up product after product to kind of reveal what's inside. A cookie. And there are these cre- incredibly sort of gentle, quiet, but... In seemingly endless, you know, once you watch one, then there's another one, there's another one, there's another one, and there's just vast amounts of this. Why don't we get another egg and open it? And it does something to kids' brains, essentially. Hmm. What, what do you mean? Well, I've been trying to understand it a little bit, and I'm really not a child psychologist or a kind of specialist in this area, which also, I mean, more adults might be more familiar with unboxing videos, which have been around for a while which is this kind of like fetishistic opening up of consumer goods. But if you look at the history of children's TV, for example, uh, Sesame Street kind of pioneered this. Hmm. And then I, I think there was a program in, in the US that was called Blue's Clues sure. or something like this. Yeah. Hi out there, it's me, Steve. Have you seen Blue, my puppy? And the first innovation that Blue's Clues did was that they um, showed the same episode over and over again. Like they showed the same episode for a week. Hi out there, it's me, Steve. Have you seen Blue? And they discovered, or they knew in advance, but what was shown that the kids absolutely loved this. They loved the repetition of it. Hi out there, it's me, Steve. And building a kind of a world that is predictable in this way uh, seems, seems to be like catnip for kids. And you can throw in these kind of little surprises which get you your little dopamine hits. And so when that's built into the kind of educational programs of something like Sesame Street, you can see it kind of being used for good. And that's not means to say that these egg videos are necessarily being used for evil, but they've just picked out just that mechanism. Assistant needs to hand me another egg. Mm, which one do you think she's going to pick this time? They're not trying to do anything else with it. They're not going to get it to, for kids to like hook them with that mechanism and then teach them arithmetic. They're just using the hook. Let's open them. Let's go. And so that makes kids susceptible to it in super obvious ways. It also makes adults super susceptible to it in, in less obvious and more complex, but I think also like you know, really quite dangerous and damaging ways as well. Yeah, I'm going to open my first one. Here we go, let's see how it goes. James Bridal picks up this idea from the TED stage. So this is, this is where we start. It's 2018, and someone, or lots of people, are using the same mechanism that, like, Facebook and Instagram are using to get you to keep checking that app, and they're using it on YouTube to hack the brains of very small children in return for advertising revenue. At least, I hope that's what they're doing. Right? I hope that's what they're doing it for. Because there's, there's easier ways of um, making ad revenue on, on YouTube. Right? You can just make stuff up or steal stuff. 
So if you search for like really popular kids' cartoons like Peppa Pig or Paw Patrol, you'll find that there's millions and millions of these online as well. Of course, most of them aren't posted by the original content creators. They come from loads and loads of different kind of random accounts, and it's impossible to know who's posting them or what their motives might be. Right? And does that sound kind of familiar? Because really, it's exactly the same mechanism that's happening across most of our digital services, where it's impossible to know where this information is coming from. It's basically fake news for kids, right? And we're training them from birth to click on the very first link that comes along, regardless of what the source is. That doesn't seem like a terribly good idea. A lot of the technology we invent can be amusing. And educational, it can also be amazing and life-changing, because the human impulse to chase technological advancement is a fact. We can't stop that train. But how often do we pause and just think about the dark side of innovation? Well, today on the show, we're going to explore some of those unintended consequences, and whether we have the capacity to manage them. Because even if we can do something in bigger and faster and flashier ways, does that always mean we should? Well, when it comes to videos on YouTube or anywhere online, James Bridal says there could be big unintended consequences, and not just from getting kids addicted to them, but something even more unsettling. So the main way people get views on their videos, and remember, views mean money. Is that they stuff the titles of these videos with with these popular terms. So you take like surprise eggs, and then you add Paw Patrol or Easter egg or whatever these things are. All of these words from other popular videos into your title until you end up with this kind of meaningless mash of language, right? That doesn't make sense to humans at all. Because of course it's only like really tiny kids who are watching your video, and what the hell do they know? Like. Your real audience for this stuff is software, is the algorithms, is the software that YouTube uses to select which videos are like other videos, to make them popular, to make them recommended, and that's why you end up with this kind of completely meaningless mash, both of title and of content. And also, on the other side of the screen, there still are these little kids watching this stuff, right? Their full attention grabbed by these weird mechanisms, and so there's autoplay, where it just keeps playing these videos over and over and over in a loop. Endlessly for hours and hours at a time, and there's so much weirdness in the system now. The autoplay takes you to some pretty strange places. This is how, within like a dozen steps, you can go from a cute video of a counting train to masturbating Mickey Mouse. Yeah, I'm sorry about that.、Uh, this does get worse. This is what happens、uh, when all of these different keywords. This desperate generation of content all comes together into a single place. This is where all those deeply weird keywords come home to roost. The stuff that tends to upset parents is the stuff that has kind of violent or sexual content, right? Children's cartoons getting assaulted, getting killed, weird pranks that actually genuinely terrify children. What you have is software pulling in all of these different influences to automatically generate kids' worst nightmares. And this stuff really, really does affect small children, right? Parents report their children being traumatized, becoming afraid of the dark, becoming afraid of their favorite cartoon characters. If you take one thing away from this, it's that if you have small children, keep them the hell away from YouTube. You know, I I,、um, I was talking to the child of a friend of mine who's in high school. You probably know this, but when a high school student wants to learn how to do something, they, they will find a video on YouTube. There's a video on YouTube for almost anything. You know how to、yeah. fix your car, or how to boil an egg in an, in an instant pot, which I just watched because I wanted to know how to boil an egg in an instant pot.、Um, and I, as a 43 year old man, am just kind of discovering this world. Right?、Mm-hmm. There are amazing things about. Access to YouTube and obviously the internet and technology, right, which have been transformational. But at the same time, I have to wonder whether we are all, especially people who were born into that digital world, are all part of this giant uncontrolled experiment, and we just don't really know what the results of that experiment will be, how it will change us as a species. Am I sounding like a crazy person, or, or is there something to that? No, I think I think you're entirely right. I think I think describing it as a kind of grand experiment is spot on. 
we have kind of released these technologies. But I mean, the release of any new technology or any one of these advances is always an experiment. Yeah. Like it's impossible sure. to test these things at scale. The thing that I find fascinating really is the fact that we're not really paying attention to the results of that experiment. Because the point of an experiment is you test something and then you make decisions or changes based on the results of that experiment. Yeah. And it's fairly clear that the experiment, which we've been participating in for some time now, of um, completely unregulated, particularly advert-driven content online is not one that's working out very well. That it's and, and you can see the results of that at kind of multiple levels. You can see it in the kind of the weird kid stuff that we're talking about. Um, but you can also see it at the larger scale of this kind of like dilution of knowledge or this kind of um, fundamentalization of knowledge, I would say. By which I mean that, uh, you know, one of the other things that YouTube optimizes for is sensation. Um, and this has become really clear that, particularly as YouTube has become this kind of repository of knowledge that people are going to look for, you know, certain systems of knowledge are designed that when you discover something and you want to discover more, it takes you deeper and deeper into that subject. YouTube is designed to show you the thing about that subject that is the most sensational, right? Which is why, I mean, just the other day, I was watching a speech from Walter Cronkite mm. from the early 80s about climate change, right? Mm. And it's really interesting to watch from back then just like how obvious and settled this debate was. But the YouTube's autoplay's next recommendation was a three-hour speech from a climate change denier. Hmm. Right, for, from a year ago. And that's not because YouTube holds some inherent belief about climate change. It's because that content is sensational. And what YouTube wants to do is, is show you things that will cause you strong reactions because that's what gets you watching. So we've decided to optimize for reactions and sensation over um, other forms of, of kind of verifying knowledge. But we've decided to do that, and we could decide to do otherwise if we pay attention to the results of this experiment. James Bridle, he's a writer, artist, and author of the book New Dark Age, Technology and the End of the Future. You can see his full talk at TED.com. Can we just acknowledge for a moment that, that things like big data and AI are going to be revolutionary. I mean, they are going to change everything. Yes, in almost every field of action. And the opportunities are, are amazing. This is Yuval Noah Harari. He's a historian and an author. So in 30 years, artificial intelligence and biometric sensors might provide even the poorest people in society with far better health care than the richest people get today. You can hardly think of a system, whether it's communication or traffic or electricity, which won't benefit from these kinds of developments. But Yuval thinks that in the bigger picture, how AI and big data might affect political power could have really dangerous unintended consequences. More and more governments are reaching the conclusion that this is like the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. Whoever leads the world in AI will dominate the entire world. And when we come back in just a moment, Yuval Harari will explain how AI might threaten to destroy liberal democracy. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First to Simply Safe, Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is self installed wireless protection for your home. The company was founded by an electrical engineer whose friends were burglarized. They wanted home security, but most systems were too complicated and too expensive. So he built Simply Safe. Now they protect over 2 million people. And with Simply Safe, there are no annual contracts. Learn more about Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/radiohour. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, introducing their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Quicken Loans will lock your rate up for 90 days while you shop. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com/ideas. And Chioki? 
Rate Shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Olympic gymnastics doctor Larry Nassar abused hundreds of women and girls for more than 20 years before he was caught. Hear how a team of women brought down a serial sexual predator. Believed, a new podcast for Michigan Radio and NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about unintended consequences and the dark side of innovation. And just a moment ago, we were hearing from historian Yuval Noah Harari, who warns that AI and big data could present a real threat to liberal democracy. If you, if you look at the clash between communism and liberalism, you can say it was a clash between two different systems for processing data and for making decisions. The liberal system is, in essence, a distributed system. It distributes information and the power to make decisions between many individuals and organizations. In contrast, communism and other dictatorial systems, they centralize, they concentrate all the information and power in one place, like in Moscow, in the case of the Soviet Union. Now, given the technology of the 20th century, It was simply inefficient because nobody had the ability to process all the information fast enough and make good decisions. I mean, how many cabbages to grow in the Soviet Union? How many cows to manufacture? How much will each cow cost? I mean, we try to make all these decisions in one place when when what you have is typewriters and filing cabinets and pen and paper and things like that. It just doesn't work. And this is one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, that the Soviet Union collapsed. So this was really a result of the prevailing technological conditions. But those technological conditions have obviously changed. Here's more from Yuval Noah Harari on the TED stage. In the 20th century, democracy and capitalism defeated fascism and communism because democracy was better at processing data and making decisions. But it is not a law of nature that centralized data processing is always less efficient than distributed data processing. With the rise of artificial intelligence and machine learning, it might become feasible to process enormous amounts of information very efficiently in one place, and then centralized data processing will be more efficient than distributed data processing. The greatest danger that now faces liberal democracy is that the revolution in information technology will make dictatorships more efficient than democracies. And then the main handicap of authoritarian regimes in the 20th century their attempt to concentrate all the information in one place, it will become their greatest advantage. So are you saying that the threat to liberal democracy increases as the ability of of machines to to process more and more amounts of data improves? Yes, in, in, in many ways. So in the 20th century, the supporters of liberal democracy had a kind of relatively easy time because you did not have to choose between ethics and efficiency. The most ethical thing to do was also the most efficient thing to do, to give power to the people, to give freedom to individuals. All these things were good both ethically and economically. And most governments around the world that liberalized their societies in the last few decades, they thought if we want a thriving economy like the US economy or like the German economy, we need to liberalize our societies. Mm. So even if we don't like very much to do it, we have to do it. But what happens if suddenly 
uh, this is no longer the case. It's still the best thing to do from an ethical perspective to protect the privacy and the rights of individuals. But it's no longer the most efficient thing to do. The most efficient thing to do is perhaps to build these giant databases which ignore completely the privacy and the rights of individuals. And it's the most efficient thing to do to allow algorithms to make decisions on behalf of human beings. The algorithms will decide who we will accept to this uh, university. The algorithms will tell you what to study and where to live and, and even whom to marry. And if this is more efficient, what happens to the ideals of, of freedom and, and human rights and individualism? This becomes a much more problematic issue than in the 20th century. Another technological danger that threatens the future of democracy is the merger of information technology with biotechnology which might result in the creation of algorithms that know me better than I know myself. And once you have such algorithms, an external system, like the government, cannot just predict my decisions, it can also manipulate my feelings, my emotions. A dictator may not be able to provide me with good health care, but he will be able to make me love him and to make me hate the opposition. The enemies of liberal democracy, they have a method. They hack our feelings, not our emails, not our bank accounts. They hack our feelings of fear and hate and vanity, and then use these feelings to polarize and destroy democracy from within. Because in the end, democracy is not based on human rationality. It's based on human feelings. During elections and referendums, you're not being asked, what do you think? You're actually being asked, how do you feel? And if somebody can manipulate your emotions effectively, democracy will become an emotional puppet show. I mean, so, so, your, so your conclusion is he who controls the data controls the people. Yes, again, if you start with the understanding that, at least according to science, our feelings do not represent some mystical free will. They represent biochemical processes in our bodies and, of course, influences from the environment. Now, what we also need to remember is that it should be technically possible to decipher, to hack human beings and human feelings. In order to hack a human being, you need a lot of biological knowledge and you need a lot of computing power. And until today, nobody could do it. Yeah. And therefore, people could believe that humans are unhackable, that human feelings reflect free will, and nobody can ever understand me and manipulate me. And this was true for the whole of history. But this is no longer true. Once you have a system that can decipher the human operating system, it can predict human decisions and it can manipulate human desires and human feelings. I mean, until today, no politician really had the ability to understand the human emotional system. By trial and error, they see what works and it changes all the time. But if we reach a point when we can reliably decipher the human biochemical system and basically sell you anything, whether it's a product or a politician, then we have a completely new kind of politics. You know, I know that you probably come across, you know, people who, who have helped to create this technology, people who had this kind of utopian idea of how data and data processing could change the world in, in positive ways, you know. But but those same people, you have to wonder whether they stop to think about the unintended consequences. When you develop this kind of technology, in most cases, you obviously focus on the positive implications. Sure. Uh, and until today, humankind has managed to avoid the worst consequences. The most obvious example is nuclear technology. 
all the doomsday prophecies from the 1950s and 1960s about uh, a nuclear war which will destroy human civilization, it didn't happen. Humankind successfully rose to the challenge of nuclear technology. Whether we can do it again with AI and with biotechnology is an open question. Yuval, you, you will know this well as an Israeli, somebody who, who lives in the biblical lands. Um, prophets are rarely rewarded. In fact, they're, <laughs> they're usually disliked, even when they're right. And oftentimes when they're right, it doesn't matter because their warnings are so dark and we ignore them at our peril. I definitely don't see myself as a prophet and I don't think that anybody can prophesize the future. Actually, it's, it's pointless. I, I, again, I define myself as a historian and what I try to do is map different possibilities. There are always more than one way in which we can go from here. And the reason I think it's important to have this discussion is because it's not too late. I see my job in changing the discussion in the present, we can still influence the direction in which this technology is going. There are always different possibilities. Yuval Noah Harari teaches history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. His latest book is called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about the scope and scale of human innovation and some of its unintended consequences. What do you remember about the talk around the Internet in 2006? I look back then and I recall a time when we all used to float around just thinking that we are doing work that's essentially altruistic. We were just like, we're connecting people to information, to each other. This is going to transform democracies and it's going to empower populations. And uh, we really didn't think about all of the platforms and apps being developed as tools for everyone who's malicious to just be even more effective. This is Yasmin Green. I am the director of research and development at Jigsaw. And Jigsaw is a technology company created by Google. So we look at problems like repressive censorship, cyber attacks, online radicalization, and we try to build technology that can help protect people from these threats. Yasmin started out at Jigsaw in 2006. This was a year after YouTube was born and the same year that Twitter was created. But that utopian vision of the internet that she was just describing, well, it didn't anticipate a platform for trolls and hate groups and extremists to find each other and build a like-minded community. And one prime example, the extremist group ISIS. ISIS has been kind of given the accolade of being, you know, the first terrorist group to really understand the internet. Mm. There was no technological genius in there use of the internet. Like, there's nothing that ISIS did that was impressive from an innovation perspective. They used the tools that are open to all of us to use for connecting, for sharing, for activism. They use those tools almost in the way that the rest of us use them, but they use them with destructive ends in mind. And so back in 2015, around the time ISIS was recruiting heavily and gaining momentum, Yasmin and her team at Jigsaw wanted to find out how ISIS was so effective. Here's Yasmin Green on the TED stage. So in order to understand the radicalization process, we met with dozens of former members of violent extremist groups. One was a British schoolgirl who'd been taken off of a plane at London Heathrow as she was trying to make her way to Syria to join ISIS. And she was 13 years old. So I sat down with her and her father and I said, why? And she said, I was looking at pictures of what life is like in Syria and I thought I was going to go and live in the Islamic Disney world. That's what she saw in ISIS. She thought she'd meet and marry a jihadi Brad Pitt and go shopping in the mall all day and live happily ever after. ISIS understands what drives people and they carefully craft a message for each audience. Just look at how many languages they translate their marketing material into. They make pamphlets, radio shows, and videos in not just English and Arabic, but German, Russian, French, 
Turkish, Kurdish, Hebrew, Mandarin Chinese. I've even seen an ISIS-produced video in sign language. It's actually not tech savviness that is the reason why ISIS wins hearts and minds. It's their insight into the prejudices, the vulnerabilities, the desires of the people they're trying to reach that does that. That's why it's not enough for the online platforms to focus on removing recruiting material. If we want to have a shot at building meaningful technology that's going to counter radicalization, we have to start with the human journey at its core. Yeah, I mean, given the internet's virtues, you know, to connect people, would it ever have been possible to to prevent bad actors from also taking advantage of of, of those tools? There's a lot of bad stuff that does get stopped, and it's easy and dangerous to say, well, there are good people and bad people, because it ends up, the prescription is really punitive technologies or, or mm. policies, which is, let's suspend people, or let's censor people, or let's punish people. And in most of the cases, my conversations with former, you know, either ISIS recruits or supporters or extremists, is that they were people with almost legitimate questions and they, they went down a bad path, but more information, better information earlier in the process could have steered them into a different direction. Radicalization isn't this yes or no choice. It's a process during which people have questions about ideology, religion, living conditions, and they're coming online for answers, which is an opportunity to reach them. So in, in 2016, we partnered with Moonshot CVE to pilot a new approach to countering radicalization called the redirect method. It uses the power of online advertising to bridge the gap between those susceptible to ISIS's messaging and those credible voices that are debunking that messaging. And it works like this. Someone looking for extremist material, say they search for how do I join ISIS, will see an ad appear that invites them to watch a YouTube video of a cleric, of a defector, some, someone who has an authentic answer. And because violent extremism isn't confined to any one language, religion, or ideology, the redirect method is now being deployed globally to protect people being courted online by violent ideologues, whether they're Islamists, white supremacists, or other violent extremists, with the goal of giving them the chance to hear from someone on the other side of that journey. I mean, it sounds like you're trying to kind of break this down with the hope, I guess, of, of, of at some point figuring out how to solve this. But this is a long-term project. This is not going to happen overnight, right? Mm-hmm. When our group was started seven years ago, I remember feeling like, wow, this is a real gamble. And now, you know, I think we have to have more people within technology companies that think about the world through this lens, like it's not enough just to focus on your platform and the, mm. you know, the micro instances that you see. Like you have to think about terrorist groups and their goal and their strategies and what they're doing across the whole internet. Um, and you have to have a big picture view. We can't be so tunnel visioned anymore. The more that we do that, the, the better we'll be at spotting problems early. Yeah. When you go around the world and you see how groups who have power are actually using technology to reinforce their power, you realize that the kind of utopian vision of what the internet was going to be was not inevitable. We'd have to be proactive and step in if we wanted to, to have a chance of realizing that. That's Yasmin Green. She's the Director of Research and Development at Jigsaw. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about unintended consequences. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Microsoft. Microsoft wants you to know that the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6, is now faster and more powerful than ever before. So you can get even more done, whether it's from your office or on your couch. Take the keyboard off and draw on it easily, or snap it back on and type on it like a laptop. With up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and the new 8th gen Intel Core processor, 
You can work how you want to for as long as you want to, wherever work takes you. Thanks also to Walmart. Risa Pittman is store manager of a Walmart that uses a robot called Bossa Nova to relieve associates of repetitive tasks so they can focus on sales instead. It used to take about two weeks for us to be able to get through all of the out of stock in the store. It takes about two hours for the Bossa Nova to go through the aisles. To learn more about the partnership between tech associates and customers at Walmart, visit walmarttoday.com technology. Dia de los Muertos is a special time for remembering those we have lost. And Alt Latino Sonic Altar is just that, a musical celebration of the lives of those we have loved. Check it out on the next Alt Latino wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, unintended consequences. Ideas about the things we invent to make life better and the outcomes we never see coming. Do you remember, like, the first smart device you got? Huh. Well, I think the Fitbit was the first thing I got that was kind of Internet of Things, like taking real-world data and quantifying it for me so I could reflect on it and it could, you know, improve my life, improve my fitness. And did it? Um... This is Kashmir Hill. (laughs) No... Kashmir is a tech reporter for Gizmodo Media. I'm specifically focused on privacy. Um, So I spend a lot of time thinking about the way that technology is changing the way that we live and what happens to our data and our information. Do you remember when you first heard the term Internet of Things? Like, oh, you're going to have a smart fridge that's going to tell you you need more eggs and you're going to have a smart coffee maker that's going to, you know, tell you um, how much coffee you're drinking and... Everything in your kitchen is going to be connected, and it's going to be awesome. And I'm thinking, that's awesome. It's like it's like those Wallace and Gromit movies where he's, like, you know, like springboarded off the bed and then, like, drops into his breakfast seat, and there's the toast and the coffee. You know, I, I, I was really this, – this was exciting to me. Yeah, and, it, and hopefully, you know, they would do all this work for you. So you would have more free time to do more interesting, creative things or, or watch more Netflix. But, yeah, I was kind of imagining my house – anticipating my needs and and really taking care of me. And Kashmir actually got a chance to experience what it would be like to live in an entire home filled with smart devices. I got a, a smart toothbrush, a smart coffee maker, a robot vacuum, the Roomba. Um, I, I bought a, a smart sex toy. Except that things didn't go exactly as planned. Kashmir Hill picks up the story from the TED stage. Being smart means a device can connect to the internet, it can gather data, and it can talk to its owner. But once your your appliances can talk to you, who else are they going to be talking to? I wanted to find out, so I went all in and turned my one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco into a smart home. Altogether, I uh, installed 18 internet-connected devices in my home. I also installed a Surya. Hi, I'm Surya, (laughs) and I monitored everything the smart home did. I built a special router that let me look at all the network activity. Surya and I are both journalists. He's not my husband. We just work together at Gizmodo. Thank you for clarifying. (laughs) The devices Kashmir bought, we were interested in understanding what they were saying to their manufacturers, but we were also interested in understanding what the home's digital emissions looked like to the internet service provider. We were seeing what her ISP could see, but more importantly, what they could sell. We ran the experiment for two months. In that two months, there wasn't a single hour of digital silence in the house, not even when we went away for a week. Yeah, it's so true. Based on the data, I knew when you guys woke up, and I knew when you went to bed. I even knew when Kashmir brushed her teeth. The devices Kashmir bought almost all pinged their servers daily. But you know which device was especially chatty? The Amazon Echo. It contacted its servers every three minutes, regardless of whether you were using it or not. Wow. I, I'm, just, I'm just wondering here. With all these smart devices, what are we actually giving up? I mean, so there's, there's a couple of things. I was focused on privacy. Um, there are definitely security concerns by 
connecting our devices to the internet. Um, Devices are made by companies that have traditionally not been internet companies. So they're not as savvy about internet security. We are exposing ourselves to the possibility of people intruding in our homes through these devices. So that has happened with baby monitors, for example. And so you had hackers that were accessing cameras in babies' rooms, sometimes even able to talk to the babies. So that's really alarming. What I was more concerned about was this tracking of what we're doing in our most intimate spaces and what is eventually done with that data and just the feeling of being constantly observed in our own homes, how that changes the really the sanctity of the home. The devices Cashmere bought ranged from useful to annoying, but the thing they all had in common was sharing data with the companies that made them. With email service providers and social media, we've long been told that if it's free, you're the product. But with the Internet of Things, it seems even if you pay, you're still the product. So you really have to ask, who is the true beneficiary of your smart home? You are the company mining you. So when a smart TV or or an Amazon Echo or, or Google Home or whatever device you have, right, when when those devices are, are pinging the companies and then sending that data back, I mean, they're just building a profile of who we are. Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, Roomba that makes my iRobot makes Roomba the smart vacuum. So they know, for example, like how often I vacuum my house and which parts of the house are dirty. The CEO of iRobot at one point was talking to journalists and said, yeah, we actually have access to great data. We have maps of people's homes wow. and we could potentially sell that to all these, you know, these companies that are getting into the smart home market like Google and Amazon and, and Apple. And people who had Roombas flipped out because they hadn't thought about that at all, that their vacuum was sucking up information about their home that could potentially be sold. And iRobot CEO later walked it back and said, oh, you know, we'd never do that without people's consent. But it was one of these wake-ups to the fact that these devices in our homes that don't, you know, they don't look like data collectors. They don't look like cameras. They don't have obvious lenses that they are watching what we're doing and collecting information about what we're doing. And I think every single company now is thinking, you know, how do we monetize data? Data is the new oil. What can we do to make new revenue streams? And they're they're looking at data. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, once there are these these comprehensive profiles of, of our behaviors and our habits and, and our likes and dislikes, I mean, we could be judged before we even walk through the door, like for a bank loan or a job or, you know, or anything. Right. And I don't think companies don't think of this as nefarious. They say like, oh, we just want to know what you want to buy. Yeah. But I think what we've seen with online tracking is that there are nefarious uses of this data, you know, um, attempts to manipulate the way that we think about the world, try to influence the way that we vote. And it's all happening with profile of us that we don't know about that's been compiled by a company we've never heard of before. And it's just creating this real paranoia for people because they don't know why they're seeing what they're seeing, but they kind of know that there's this data collection going on. And um, I think people are getting really worried about how these companies are influencing us and how much access to our data they have. Kashmir Hill. She's a reporter for Gizmodo Media. You can see Kashmir and Surya's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about the dark side of innovation, the fallout, the downstream effects, and the unintended consequences of all of this technology we're creating today. I'm not sure that's exactly the way I would put it. And then there are some of us who aren't freaking out, who actually love unintended consequences. What I love about them is the way that life is so unpredictable and you really wouldn't have positive surprises unless there were also negative ones. This is Edward Tenner. He's a historian of technology. To me, the philosophy of unintended consequences really means keeping open. It means constantly observing uh, the people who see endless 
despair and suffering on one side from technology and the people who see a wonderful uh, new world are, are really both uh, ideological. And I don't, I don't think that either is, is wrong. I think it's important to have perspective on decisions and on history that will let us look at change with more equanimity. And as Edward points out, if you look at innovation throughout history, it's always better to take the long view. Here's more from Edward Tenner on the TED stage. Let's go to 10,000 years before the present, to the time of the domestication of grains. What would our ancestors 10,000 years ago have said if they really had technology assessment? And I can just imagine the committees reporting back to them on where agriculture was going to take humanity at least in the next few hundred years. It was really bad news. First of all, worse nutrition, shorter lifespans. It was simply awful for women. The skeletal remains from that period have shown that they were grinding grain uh, morning, noon, and night. And politically, it was the beginning of a much higher degree of inequality. If there had been rational technology assessment then, I think they very well might have said, let's call the whole thing off. Of course, this was going to be better in the long term for, for humans, but there were going to be some bad things that were going to happen as well. That's right. And my point there was we have to recognize the limits of technological assessment. We have to take a longer view, which means that, that sometimes, as I like to say, things can go uh, right only after they've gone wrong. And if we try to prevent uh, any new development with potentially bad consequences, we may be freezing in the bad consequences that we already have. Which is interesting because it reminds me of, of something you bring up in your TED Talk, which is, which I didn't know, which is the example of the Titanic, which is after it it sank, there were all these laws that were passed uh, that required ships to carry more lifeboats. Yes. Well, I think when we think about the Titanic, we have to disregard for the moment the films we've seen about the Titanic and put ourselves in the position of captains of ships on the North Atlantic at that time. Sea ice was known as a problem, but it was not known as a problem that caused massive loss of life. It could damage a ship, but there was always time for the rescue of the passengers and crew. So the Titanic was really a case where everything worked out wrong and the rescue didn't come. The lesson of the Titanic for a lot of the contemporaries was that you must have enough lifeboats for everyone on the ship. And this was the result of, of, of the tragic loss of lives of people who could not get into them. However, there was another case, the Eastland, a ship that capsized in Chicago Harbor in 1915, and it killed 841 people. That was 14 more than the passenger toll of the Titanic. The reason for it, in part, was the extra lifeboats that were added that made this already unstable ship even more unstable. And that again proves that when you're talking about unintended consequences, it's not that easy to know the right lessons to draw. It's, it's really a question of the system, how the ship was loaded, the ballast, and, and many other things. I mean, it is an amazing example of how we are kind of wired to react, right? Like something bad happens, and then to solve it or to prevent it, the, the, the reaction or the solution that we put forward has worse consequences than doing nothing. Yes, well, I think we can say that very often the means that you put in place after some kind of disaster will in the long run lead to the next disaster. For example, hmm. new bridge designs have a lifespan of about 30 years. There is some disaster that leads to a new type of bridge, and then engineers get more and more confident in the design. They get bolder and bolder, and then there is some kind of new catastrophe that leads to 
reconsidering that technology and the mm. cycle starts all over again. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that, it, look, it, there's no point in worrying about this stuff or bothering with this stuff because, you know, the course of history is the course of history, that we, we, we can't necessarily shape it. And I wonder whether, whether that's true. Um, I'm not saying that we should we should do nothing that that we we shouldn't take any uh, any action, but we should also realize that really two things happen. That first of all, the positive outcomes that we expect are, are usually not nearly as as positive as we imagine them, but also the negative things don't turn out in the same way. For example, we tend to think that what is going on is just going to go on and on and get worse and worse, or it's going to go, go on and on and get better and better. And reality usually has surprises for us. But Edward, take something, you know, as, as scary as climate change, right? I mean, isn't there some value in anticipating the worst case scenarios and then trying to prevent them? I think it's very important that the fear of worst case scenarios is leading to all kinds of proposals for geoengineering, for 100% renewable power. I'm all for this, and I think it's very good that our fear of apocalypse is motivating that. So I don't dispute that at all. But I don't think it's really terribly helpful unless you're actually working on something concretely to deal with the problem, to worry too much about the problem if there isn't something that you can do about it. I don't know. I mean, I, I think you're right, and and I feel very reassured by this. But, you know, in the middle of the night when I wake up in a cold sweat, I'm thinking we're like at the very edge of destroying ourselves. Like this, this can be the end of our species. Yes, it could. Or probably more likely it would mean a worldwide a degradation of you know the living conditions of of humanity but remember there was always a positive side of these epidemics so for example after the black death in the 14th century if you survived it was a very good time to be a peasant you uh, had lower rents there were more opportunities for people to become uh, artisans and masters of their own workshops. So there, there was really a lot of opportunity if you didn't get killed by the epidemic. <laughs> Great. If you made it through, right? That's it. So that's maybe that's the one bright spot. So, you know, hope that you hope that you'll be one of the survivors. That's Edward Tenner. His latest book is called Our Own Devices past and future of body technology. You can watch his entire talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our episode on unintended consequences this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, and Deba Motasham, with help from Daniel Shukin and Megan Shellon. Our intern is Dareth Gales. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.